Good morning. Glad you're here to worship with us this morning. That song is really an illustration of uh, what it's like to be in survival mode, default mode. We start out with good intentions. We want our relationships to go well. And sometimes we default into a mode <clears throat> that is very native to us where it's normal, it's natural, but it's not very pleasant for those around you or yourself in survival mode. Boy, life doesn't taste very good. I wanted to give you a couple of snapshots from my, my life uh, in the past uh, to, to just give you a picture of survival mode. I, I have a history of defaulting into survival mode. My very first, here's an example, my very first at-bat ever in Little League Baseball. I was eight years old. I hit the ball. I'm sure it was a mile. <laughs> no. I hit the ball over the outfielder's head, and it's going, and we didn't have fences, and so I've, I'm running around the bases. I ran around all the bases, and I slid right across home plate, and just to make sure that the umpire knew that I touched home plate, I reached over to start touching home plate, and the catcher by then had the ball and tagged me out, and he called me out. To say the least, I went ballistic. I'm, I'm crying, I'm screaming, I'm yelling. The guy I knew, the umpire, was trying to date my sister, and uh, so one of the things I yelled was, she's never going to date you, my sister's never going to date you. I knew that, so that was something that I knew would hurt. And uh, just thought I'd throw that out there. I, I, went into the, I went into the dugout. I'm throwing helmets and bats, and I'm screaming. The commissioner of the league has to come over and try to calm me down. That, that is one picture of survival mode. That's what I mean. I didn't get what I wanted, which was rightfully mine. Frankly, I slid right across the plate. The guy was blind. I didn't get it. And I went ballistic. That's what happens. Well, another instance is in college, my, my sophomore year of college. It's when I met Cindy. I met her when she was a freshman. We started dating. We dated for three or four months. Then Christmas break happened, and uh, she went home and came back. And Well, when she came back, she had a talk with me and mentioned that she would just like to be friends and date other guys. And I said, well, I would not like that. And uh, <laughs> and so I said, hey, you know, it's all of me or none of me. And she said, none of you then. And I called the bluff. The bluff, you know, it wasn't whatever. It wasn't a bluff, doggone it. And so anyway, uh, I began to pout several months. This is the opposite side of survival mode. This is another extreme. I, I ignored her existence on the face of the earth for the next several months. Gave her the cold shoulder, pretended like she didn't exist, even though we were in a very small college. Cafeteria wasn't that big. And I had one interchange that I'm not very proud of with her that we won't get into. It, wasn't, it just showed my heart. And that, that's another picture of just cold shoulder, trying to hurt people that way. Trying to get what I wanted in a very, very childish way. That's survival mode. We, we get into survival mode when we're disappointed. Someone doesn't meet our expectations. We get irritated. We get frustrated. Our goals are blocked. We need someone to come through for us 
and they block our goals. They don't give us what we want, the encouragement. They don't help us do what we want to accomplish, and we get angry. We're hurt by someone. Ill feelings just simmer right below the surface, and we look for a way to hurt them back. That, that actually is what, is, is, that's malice, a deep, deep-seated ill will towards someone that just simmers there. And, and that's, that's how we get into survival mode. There is no joy in survival mode, no, no joy whatsoever. It is not fun. It's not fun for the person who's defaulted into it, and it's not fun uh, for the people around them, for sure. When you're in survival mode, though, it's like that song said, it's, it's, you're tangled in a web, you're twisting, you're turning. You can't always, you're disoriented, so you can't always see your way out. Um, in the illustration for this series uh, that you can see on the screens, there's a guy pointing the way out. He's pointing to the oasis. And that's what Scripture does. That's what God does for us is he, as we get into the Bible, he shows us how to get out of the web, how to get out of survival mode. And in his word, he is very clear about how to relate in a way that that brings his blessing, where things are good. In this series, we're going to look at four attitudes that come out of the heart, that if we choose them over and over again as we're living daily life, then we'll get out of survival mode. God will help us get out of it. And so we're going to dig into these. The first thing we learned from Scripture, and it's an important thing to understand, is that selfishness is the main characteristic of survival mode. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3 says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh. This is a contrast in Scripture. All through the New Testament, there's a contrast between a spiritual man and a fleshly man. So he says, I, I couldn't speak to you as spiritual men, but as men of the flesh, as to infants in Christ. You're acting like babies. Quit it. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not able, for you're still fleshly. And then he lists the characteristics of being fleshly. Uh, for since there is Still jealousy and strife among you. Are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? Jealousy. You know, why don't I have that? I want that. I deserve it. Strife. The source of all conflict is we're not getting what we want. That's what Scripture says. James 4, 1 through 3. You can look it up later. But that's what it says. We, we fight. We quarrel. We, we battle with one another because we don't want we don't get what we want, and we want it, and we deserve it. This is survival mode that he's describing here in this passage. That we're born into survival mode. We're, we're born into it. It's the way, the way it is. Um, spiritual persons, though, that he's mentioning here are the opposite of fleshly people who are living in survival mode. The, the, the Bible term flesh carries this core meaning. It, it means that you're trying to live life on your own without God's help. And you're using strategies, your native strategies, for getting what you want without His help, without relying on Him. That's flesh. A spiritual person is the opposite. A spiritual person is one who 
follows the Holy Spirit's leadership. When you commit your life to follow Christ, uh, the Scripture says the Holy Spirit comes and lives, takes up residence in your heart and life. And from that point on, there is a tremendous benefit because He is the way. He, He Himself, God Himself within you, helps you to tap into the resources and the power and the perspective of eternity, of heaven, God himself. And so to be spiritual means you rely on God himself and his spirit to live life God's way. So you no longer rely on yourself, but you rely on him. Now, once you commit yourself to follow Christ, you can default into survival mode. You can keep defaulting into the flesh. There's this picture in Scripture that, you know, there's, there's the flesh, there's the spirit, they're battling each other, there's this war going on inside. This is important to know. As you set out to follow Christ, the, the, the battle begins. And you can keep defaulting into flesh mode, but you can also recognize it. And the Holy Spirit is helping you recognize flesh mode. And when you're out of line, when you say something or do something, many times the Holy Spirit will convict you from the inside. And at that moment, you can stop and say, God, what I said was wrong. What I did was wrong. I'm in the flesh again. I'm trying it on my own. Will you forgive me? And will you help me out of this? And he does. He he leads us out of survival mode. So surrendering to him is crucial because we have the Holy Spirit who enters our life and gives us the power to get out of default mode. You can default into the flesh at any moment. And it's kind of my, the picture I have in my mind many times is uh, you, you have the ability to flip the switch by determining who you're going to rely on. Am I going to rely on myself to make this happen and to get what I want out of this person? Or am I going to trust God to give me everything I need and then love the person the way that he would want. That's, that's the, the value of following the Lord. I've, I've asked Nathan Lewis to come up and just give us some answers to some questions uh, about uh, narcissism. Narcissism, uh, Narcissus was a figure from Greek mythology who had never seen... Hi, Nathan. Thanks for coming. Hi. Uh, He's a guy from Greek mythology who uh, was walking along. He had never seen a reflection of himself. He was walking along, and somebody was talking to him, and he he wasn't paying attention. And then he looked into a pool of water and saw his reflection and began to try to talk and relate to his reflection and became so enthralled with himself that he got stuck there. He actually was turned into a flower by the pool, and he got stuck. So Nart... The, the idea is, you know, you get all wrapped up in yourself, and it, you, you hurt other people, you ignore other people, it, it ruins it. So Nathan has been doing some study on narcissism. Nathan, uh, could you just tell us what you do for a living and uh, how, maybe how long you've been? Nathan's a counselor, a family counselor, and uh, prof- for a while. I've been a professor of psychology and marriage and family therapy at... Uh, California Baptist University for about 20 years now. And how long have you been counseling, counseling, <laughs> counseling families and individuals? Uh, around 30 years or so. Okay. I started uh, when I was five. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we would have never known, you know. 
Um, narcissism is a current kind of topic in psychology, and so I wanted him to share with us uh, what it is and then some of the damaging effects. So, uh, Nathan, could you define narcissism for us? Narcissism, uh, in a word, is excessive self-love and self-admiration. It has a lot of characteristics, but there's five major characteristics. Uh, uh, one is that, and, and characteristics, and really based on the need that the narcissist has. The narcissist believes that they're absolutely special and need to feel special, that they are unique. And they're unlike anybody else, and so they stand out and should be recognized for that. They're also uh, vain uh, and there is a need, there's an obsession with how they look and a need to be admired for how, how good they look or how sharp they are and the way that they carry themselves uh, that need, need to be hot. Um, they're also materialistic because they, they have to have the best and coolest stuff and be admired for that. And we'll often spend uh, more money and go into debt in order to have the right stuff and get things they can't afford to give the appearance that they are that they're cool. They also have a sense of entitlement, convinced that they deserve the best and everybody should recognize that and accommodate it. And then uh, they're they're over tend to be overconfident, believing that they can do things even if they really aren't capable of doing it. So they'll take risks and more often than not, the, the committed narcissist is, uh, is not very successful in, in any area of life because they, they do a lot of stupid things in taking risks. Well, good. I know you've been doing a lot of research on uh, narcissism. And uh, what, does, what has the research been showing? And uh, Nathan's going to share about the impact on parenting and families because that is the basic unit from which we come and impacts us. So what, what have you been learning? Well, I started noticing some of these trends in college students and, and began to investigate that. Part of it was seeing that what kind of goes along with this is, is the failure to grow up and mature. And so I was kind of, that's what I was interested in, and then started seeing that, that there's some of those characteristics were there. And uh, there's, there's two things that the research uh, shows about narcissism in our culture. One, that it's on the rise. Uh, one major study that you see the results of on the screen there is that between 1982 and 2006, in administering a narcissistic personality inventory to college students and comparing uh, 2006 to 1982, there, was a, there has been a 30% increase in narcissism among college students and leading some researchers to, to conclude that this generation can be called Generation Me. It's very, very self Focus, uh, and then, then the second thing is that uh, narcissism is ubiquitous or pervasive in our society. You can find it everywhere uh, now, and it is both reinforced and um, and fostered by every area of of our culture. Uh, and so that that there's kind of a cultural narcissism now, particularly in America. And one particular area that demonstrates that is the shift in parenting values. Um, back in 1958, they started giving this survey to parents, asking them, what do you value? And they gave them the choice of five things. What do you value in your kids? Uh, obedience, hard work, being popular, um, uh, thinking for themselves. 
or helping other people. And uh, you, uh, obedience ranked among the highest in 1958. And as of uh, 2004, it ranks almost the lowest. And in some more recent surveys, it doesn't, it's not even a value anymore. And the idea is that there's been a shift in parenting values, and it can be summarized um, this shift over the years. And in 1920, they, did a, they gave a survey to mothers, and they asked, what do you value most in your kids? And they said three things. We value strict obedience, loyalty to church, and good manners. Uh, those things aren't even on the list anymore. And when they started giving that other survey, 1950, the most important thing was that, that children learned to obey. By the 80s and 90s, obedience had steadily declined until it ranked uh, second to the last. And now in 2004, you see a major shift in values. Uh, uh, obedience is, has ranked an all-time low. What is valued now is that kids see themselves as special. And uh, parents constantly tell their kids that they are special. And what is another thing that has been identified uh, time and again in the research is that parents now, compared to, to the past, are more uh, over-involved in their kids' lives and more um, over-indulgent. Uh, so that instead of uh, valuing obedience in their kids, uh, they now tend to obey their kids, uh, give them what they want. So how, um, how, what, what does it take in order for a person to have a, a good relationship with someone else? What are the key characteristics? Well, three things. One is love. They have, they have to have the ability to look past themselves and love, love somebody and look out for their interests. Uh, second thing is care. They have to be able to genuinely care for somebody care about them and care for them and do things that benefit them. And the third thing is, is um, particularly for stability, is to remain loyal to them and committed to the relationship regardless of, of what happens. So how, how has a narcissistic, how does a narcissistic focus damage friendships and family relationships? Uh, they are the complete opposite of that. Uh, they're selfish in relationships. They exploit people and they're, they're, disloyal, instead of loving people, they have this intense love for themselves. And they actually believe that the other person exists for them and uh, can't understand why they wouldn't love them. It's just a given. And so everything is about them. And, and so they have more of a tendency to use people and abuse them uh, and just exploit everything that they have. And they, they will readily discard them. Uh, they're committed as long as, as long as it benefits them, and if not, they bail on on the relationship. And it's not that um, you're a narcissist or you're not a narcissist. We actually all have some of these characteristics to some degree. The point is, is what what the research is showing is that uh, uh, this is growing and becoming more and more an issue. Uh, and it's very, very damaging to. It's like a poison to relationships. Thank you, Nathan. I really appreciate it. Um, I wanted Nathan to share because it, what he's telling us, the research shows, and 
And most of that research, I think the, the biggest part of it is not Christian re- researchers. It, it's, this is what's coming out in secular research from some leading psychologists. Um, I wanted him to share that because our flesh pulls us into survival mode, and now we have the world, uh, the culture that we live in, doing the same thing, which, which has been the case for a long time. But we, we have this pull from, the, the scripture says we have three enemies as Christians, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the world and the flesh, a friend of mine draws this picture, he draws a picture of a boat on, on the, the whiteboard, and he says the boat is the world, a person skiing behind the boat is the flesh, and the devil's driving the boat. And so we, this is what we have to deal with as people. We have to get past ourselves, past the world, these trends, these values that are pulling us back into default mode in our relationships. And as you get into Scripture, it's very clear how to do that. God is very clear. There's a lot of clarity. The, the stuff we're going to read this morning was written 2,000 years ago, but it's very relevant today. Because God's the one who made us, and he knows how it works. He knows how life works. And so he gave us some real help here. He shows us a better way. First of all, love motivates us to get out. It motivates us to find the way out of survival mode. Philippians 2, 1 through 2 says, If you have any encouragement from being united in Christ. What's happening? He's right, Paul writes this letter to a church in Philippi. There are two ladies in the church who are having a serious fight. They are battling it out. They're in default mode. And they're just going after each other. There's a disagreement and each of them are trying to get their way. And he's trying to show the church what the Lord gives us for getting getting out of that. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. When you decide to follow Christ, here's what Scripture says. On our own, naturally, we're born, and we decide to go our own way in life, to try to make it without God, to live life independent of Him. That's what the first man and first woman did. They decided to rebel and to find uh, life outside of God's boundaries, and that what happens when you rebel, every one of us has decided to do the same thing, is it cuts you off from knowing God personally. It separates you from his love, from his resources for living life, and it cuts you off from knowing him personally. When you, when you decide, to, when you realize that you're going your own way and you need to get into a relationship with God, you turn around, and that's when many of us are not quite sure what to expect from God. Because we don't know if he's going to slap us. We don't know if he's going to step on us. We don't know if he's going to crush us. We're not quite sure if he's going to lecture us. But whenever your heart turns, that's repentance. Whenever you turn around from going your own way and look to God and admit to God that you've been in rebellion, what you find is open arms. You find that God loves you right where you're at and he wants to help you out of it that's the grace of god 
the love of God. You begin to experience. Now, you have to admit your rebellion. You have to admit that you've sinned, that you've missed the mark, and you haven't done what God life the way God wants you to. But the moment you admit it, boy, you experience his love and grace and freedom. That's what Paul's talking about. If there's any encouragement from being united with Christ, because we're separated by rebellion and sin, and we're united in Christ when we turn around to follow. There's encouragement there. There is comfort in his love. There is fellowship with his spirit, which just means his spirit is living with us to help us. We have resources now to live differently and do life different. And then he refers to tenderness and compassion. What should happen when you experience the grace of God and the forgiveness and the love that he offers is it should get to you from the inside. Those words in the Greek that this was originally written in, tenderness and compassion, it, it, it's talking about your internal organs. <laughs> it's, it's a reference to your insides that you should, this should get to you deep down and, and cause you to live differently and relate differently to the people around you. So that's the, the, the source we have when you come to Christ you have a reservoir to draw resources from to love the people around you. That's what that's a reference to. We have a real opportunity for good friendships and family relationships, and we can get to that oasis by the grace of God, with God's help, and by the power of his spirit. Verse 2 mentions the things that bring people together, the things that unite, being like-minded, having a mind like Christ, having the same love, having the love of Christ being one in spirit and purpose, living for the Lord's purpose. When you're all tied up in survival mode, you need perspective outside of yourself to help you figure out what's going on. And you find it, in, you find it from God through his word as his spirit shows you what's going on. That's, that's where the help comes from. We've got to have somebody from beyond us to pull us out of survival mode, and God offers to do that. When you come to Christ, he motivates you and leads you out. So love motivates. Humility helps us to see the way out of survival mode. Philippians 2, 3 through 4, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is a capsule of the mind of Christ. This is the way Jesus thinks. He doesn't look just to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. He's willing to serve. He's willing to sacrifice. Pride inflates your own self-importance. When you get proud, vain conceit, it leads to selfishness, selfish ambition. It's like, you know, you just pump yourself up to the point where it's like looking at people around you and handling conflict and dealing with the relationship, it's like looking through the rear view mirror, the side view mirror on a, on a car where objects in the mirror may be larger than they appear. Well, you're, you're so big that everybody around you looks so small and you begin to treat them wrongly. And that's what happens. Do nothing out of that mode, the scripture says. We need to, to, to do what we do out of humility, which is determining that you're going to consider others better than yourself. And here's how you do that, some practical steps for doing that. 
live the royal law, firstly. This is how you live humility. This is how you begin to see what to do. You look at the needs of others. It says in James 2.8, If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love the neighbor as yourself. You do well. Life is good. Relationships are good. But what he, humility allows you to focus on others, not on yourself, and see what they need. This is how you get to the oasis. Second thing to do, second key, is always show honor. If you're not showing honor, you're in flesh mode, and you need to confess it and get out of it. Thankfully, God is gracious and, and leads us out. Romans 12, let love be genuine, hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. If you want to have a competition, compete to show the most honor to the people in your family to your friends, to your roommates, to the people you work with. Outdo, compete to show honor. The word honor literally means money paid. It means giving value. It, it, it has this idea of esteem or valuables. You're, you're giving value to the other person. God gave us all. A high value as human beings. Every person on the face of the earth is extremely valuable to God. We have a high and equal value. He made us, first of all, and in making us, he gave us a place in creation above it. He gave us a high place in creation, you find in Scripture. And when we decided to take matters into our own hands and rebel and live life our own way, the Scripture's picture is we fell But then he continues to show how valuable we are because he died for us in Jesus Christ. He paid the ultimate price for us, which gives every person on the face of the earth a tremendous amount of dignity and value. And so we show the same thing in humility. That's what we do. Another key is to use words that build. This passage of Scripture is... A filter I try to use, and it certainly limits my words. (laughs) It says, do not let any unwholesome talk, worthless talk, rotten talk, corrupt talk, worthless, doesn't help. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. So you screen out worthless talk and only say what benefits others. You need a heart. It's different to do that. Jesus wants to give us that heart. And then finally, another key is in preference, show deference. You know, a lot of times, have you ever been in an argument and then you're, you're, you're just battling, you're arguing, you're, you're in a tiff, and then all of a sudden you're, why are we arguing? And you trace it back to the silliest cause of the argument. It's something that doesn't really matter. Well, There's a a core principle in Scripture. In these matters, these gray areas, these preferences and opinions, the the more mature person, the stronger person, is to let them go. It doesn't really matter. In preferences, show deference. In principle, in matters of principle, when it does matter, you show a kind resolve and demeanor. But here's some 
verses that were written to churches who were having trouble. Some people were arguing about whether you should eat certain kinds of foods and, and, and different things. And Romans 15 says, We who are strong must be considerate of those who are sensitive about things like this. We must not just please ourselves. We should help others do what is right and build them up in the Lord. You see the theme. This is the way out of survival mode. 1 Corinthians 10. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. Boy, we do. Sometimes we're, we just don't want, we don't want to show good to others. We don't want to get out of survival mode. You know, it's like familiar. They're old tattered clothes, but we, we like them. They, they're comfortable. If it's just something you prefer, then defer. I mean, yeah, it, 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 it's the big idea is limit your freedom out of consideration for others. At CIV, we have seven hard attitudes that we commit to that form boundaries or guidelines for how we're going to relate to each other in church life. They are directly from Scripture, and they lead us out of survival mode. I think what God wants is he wants us to learn in church life, the way we relate to one another here, how to stay out of survival mode. When you get into it, how to get out of it. And so we have these hard attitudes. If you begin to practice them, they, they make things good across the board in life. And the first hard attitude relates to what I've been talking about today. Put the goals and interests of others above your own. It's called a hard attitude because it's got to come from the heart. Your heart in Scripture is your central guidance system. This is where you make your choices for what you're going to say and what you're going to do. It's like the cockpit of a plane determines where it's going. Your heart determines what you're going to say or do. Everything flows out of there. And it's, it's an attitude because an attitude is a, a, a chosen mental or emotional approach to a person or a thing. We choose these, mental and emotional. It's the way we're going to go at it. So we commit to these things, and God wants us all to commit to these things so that we can get out of survival mode when we realize, oh, I chose the wrong attitude. And from the heart, I want to choose the right one. Jesus, in Philippians 1, has done, we find, he has done what's needed. God has given us the resources to get out of survival mode and stay out of survival mode. When we follow Christ, he, he leads us to these things. In a few minutes, we're going to be taking our offering. I want to wrap up the message and I want to thank you for your generous giving because that's the way we do what we do. There are some connection cards. Alex mentioned them. And you can drop those in the offering when they come by. But there's also some next steps that you can take, some ways to apply the message this morning. We always try to have these at the end of a message because it's in the doing, in the following, stepping out to follow what you've learned in the Scripture that increases your understanding. That's where the blessing is. And so we have these steps. Here are some suggestions. You may have others that you want to take. Uh, first step you could take is to memorize Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourself. Just to remind you, just to stay out of the mode. When I'm in the mode, I want to get out of the mode. Ask God for forgiveness and, and move out. Second step, read Philippians 2, 5 through 8. 
and write down how you can imitate Christ in your relationships. That is a passage where we, we find what Jesus did in his relations, how he approached us and our relate, in relating to us and how we can imitate him. Third step, look over the message notes today and identify uh, the first step, my first step out of survival mode today. What's the first thing I can do today to get out of survival mode? And then finally, for the first time, I am deciding to follow Christ. For the very first time, maybe you have never decided to turn around from going your own way and to go God's way. And you want to make that decision this morning. We have some things coming up to really help with your growth in Christ and your walk with Him. Uh, one of those is base camp. We're going to start that on October 3rd. And I mention it in connection with that for the first time I'm going to commit my life to Christ or decide to follow Christ. Because at base camp, you can get more information. If you're investigating Christianity, you can find out what the core message of the Bible is, what the core message of Christianity is, and how you can establish a relationship with God. Neil Walker is going to teach that class on October 3rd. It's during this service, so instead of coming to this service, you can go to that class and learn. And then another thing we're offering is quiet time class, uh, which a quiet time is spending time every day reading the Bible and praying and letting God speak to you and talking to God. And the quiet time class is going to be Coming is going to help you come up with a plan for doing that. That is one thing. That daily meeting with God has helped me identify when I'm in survival mode and shown me the way out more than any other thing. Just getting into Scripture, hearing God, and letting Him correct me and show me where I'm wrong and then help me get out of it. That's a very important thing in learning to walk with God. And then finally, this is the last day to sign up for growth groups. I want to encourage you not to miss out on the opportunity to be in a group. In the groups, the group itself commits to doing important things that help you grow in your Christian life. So you, you, you get together and you study a topic and you talk about it and then you commit to some things. It's over a 10-week period. You, it gives you an opportunity to, to test out what it's like to to do the things that help you grow, and it's designed to encourage your growth in Christ. So I want to encourage you not to miss out on that. Uh, this is the last day to sign up. You, you can sign up on your card if you already know which group you want to be in. You should have received a catalog, and there's a table outside the door there where you can find out more information if you'd like. Let's pray together before we continue. Would the band come up? Father, we, we thank you for your word that gives us so much perspective uh, from you that's above our situations and circumstances and help us, helps us to see what's going on and learn how to get out of the struggles we're in. God, thank you for the help that you give and for your kindness and grace and forgiveness when we catch ourselves in flesh mode or default mode. God, thank you for your, your kindness to us. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.